Hello, I'm AT. Welcome to the Bulldog Gear podcast, where we aim to open up conversations and create discussions around the practical habits, ethos, and philosophies of the most successful people in our industry. Here, we will endeavor to identify, unpack, and discuss the actions and habits of fiercely successful individuals in and around the fitness space in an attempt to create clear, actionable philosophies for you guys to experiment with and implement on your own journey of self-improvement. And welcome back to the Bulldog Gear podcast. Guys, today we are joined by former Team GB and current driver and founder of the new Trinidad and Tobago bobsleigh team, Axel Brown. Axel isn't just a profoundly interesting guy with a pretty fascinating story that, for my money, is worthy of at very least a Netflix miniseries. He also has some incredible philosophies that apply to far more than just sport and training. We talked all things Winter Olympics, ownership, and how he's currently pretty much living a very real-life version of the movie Cool Runnings. So enjoy and keep your eyes peeled for Axel in the future. Hello, Axel. How are you doing? I'm right. I'm good. I'm good. First first podcast I've ever done, so I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I'm absolutely uh, humbled to be um, popping your podcast cherry there. <laughs> there we go. Uh, Axel for anyone um, first and foremost thank you for joining me this evening Uh, but for anyone listening at home I wonder if you could give us a quick rundown of kind of who you are where you're at now and and how you got there and feel free to kind of take as many winding turns as you like on this one sure so I'm currently a bobsleigh pilot uh, competing for Trinidad and Tobago now I obviously don't sound nor do I look particularly typically Trini uh, which is the short term for Trinidad and Tobago um, but so my mum is from Trinidad and Tobago and my dad's British and I recently made that switch to com- from competing for Great Britain for the last seven years over to competing for Trinidad and Tobago um, did that this summer it was going to happen in 2020 but uh, for obvious reasons everything international was pretty tricky so it kind of all got shoved towards the end of 2021 and became a bit of a mad rush in terms of getting everything sorted in time for the Olympics which is obviously our main goal so we're currently in the midst of trying to qualify for the Olympics uh, that all happens in a couple of weeks time we get the official announcement um, so we've we've been kind of battling battling getting getting on the ice um, and then once we kind of hit the ice our actual competitions have gone uh, fairly smoothly up to this point. Um, the hardest part was was getting there because it's been an absolute mountain of international bureaucracy to get to this point. But yeah, we're there. So uh, before that, yeah, like I said, I was competing for Great Britain for six years. This is my seventh year of competition uh, where I was a push athlete within the bobsleigh setup, uh, kind of joined as a development guy, worked my way through the system. Uh, and then off the back of the last Olympics, I decided uh, I didn't like my fate being in somebody else's hands. And I wanted to kind of take ownership of that and become a pilot myself and qualify for the Olympics that way, but also run my own team the way that I thought teams should be run, given uh, what I'd seen as part of somebody else's, really. So, yeah, currently kind of running running that team, um, running the, the Trinidad and Tobago Association at the same time and, and trying to build up something really special, both for these Olympics coming up in the next couple of months, but hopefully going forward that will long outlive me. Yeah, I mean, that really is quite an... I mean, I... I heard your story um, through Ian, Ian Thomas of, of Bulldog a, a while a while back now, and uh, I think we touched base on it 
back and forward every now and again to see how you were getting on. It really is quite, quite a cinematic sort of story, isn't it? Um, it it feels that way. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, there's definitely, there's at least a Netflix series in here, I think, (laughs) (laughs) or, uh, you know, your, your memoirs will need to be published one day. Well, we, we tried to have a couple of different documentary crews follow this season for mm. exactly that reason, um, because it is kind of, it is a bit out there. It is a bit nuts. Yeah. Now, obviously to me, it just feels I'm, I'm living my life. I'm trying to do my thing, but I am aware that it's also a pretty uh, out there story and, and a pretty out there kind of thing to have happened. So both for a personal side, I did want it documented, just, you know, something to show the grandkids, right? But uh, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm aware that other people will probably find it interesting as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in a minute, I want to get into kind of your your personal history of the sport. Mm. But while we're still kind of on this train, am I right in thinking that before you set up the, the Trinidad and Tobago team what was their kind of presence in winter sports previous to that because i'm sure anyone who kind of knows where trinidad and tobago is geographically what the climate's like you know what their Mm. culture's like it's gonna that's gonna be quite a um you know a a surprise so what was their kind of presence in the winter sports scene or historically practically non-existent practically non-existent so there was a bobsleigh team for three olympic cycles back uh from the the first games after the whole kind of cool runnings thing blew up yeah. in 1988 in, in Calgary. So then a load of different smaller nations got into the sport. So there was uh, one pilot called Gregory Sun. He ran three Olympic cycles and Trinidad and Tobago have competed in them, but they haven't existed in bobsleigh since then, since the 2002 Salt Lake Olympics until now. So there's been a 20 year hiatus. Now there are other athletes that compete in the winter sports, but again, it, it's kind of sparse and it's often mm. just individual athletes that, you know, have, have either, you know, grown up in Trinidad or have a tie there via their relatives like me um, and are able to kind of compete there. So uh, currently there is a, a skier who went to the Youth Olympics and we also have a cross-country skier who is currently trying to qualify for Beijing. Nice, nice. So yeah, there's not there's not a huge culture of it, right? Here we no. would we would think of it as something incredibly developmental that you'd get into, and there's governing bodies, and there's a there's a whole system of works there to support you. Where obviously. Yeah that's thin on the ground there i should imagine well yeah again pretty much non-existent so we we had to kind of formulate all of this stuff ourselves from from the ground up really we had some help from the previous organization which helped us with some of the legalities and things and being recognized by the ioc but yeah for the most part it's been right we've got to we've got to create all of this stuff which i've had to learn on the fly because you know ultimately i'm just trying to do my sport not run my own go body and, and all of that stuff but it's it's been a steep learning curve but but we've got there and again it was made doubly hard by the fact i got my passport finally in july of this year now the deadline for any kind of registration was the end of september so september 30th for organizations so we had three months with which to create an entire um governing body now the trinidad and Tobago olympic association is obviously well founded because they're very good in the summer olympics so that does oversee the winter olympics as well so at least we have been able to kind of work with the olympic association there uh now they were hesitant at first because they're like well who is this guy you know what are they trying to do and and all of that which understandable you've Mm. just got this guy kind of showing up and being like hey i've got a bobsleigh team and i'm racing for trinidad and tobago now instead of great britain right but uh 
once we'd kind of shown our professionalism and our ability on the ice as well, they kind of came around to, oh, okay, these guys aren't pretenders. They're not kind of trying to chance, you know, a, a, a last place spot at the Olympics. Yeah. They are actually competent. What's your your personal background with the sport? Uh, something I've no, I don't know if it's just the maybe the the circles I'm kind of, my circle of awareness, my sphere of awareness. But I feel like I've noticed uh, a definite uprise or a definite uptick in interest in, in winter sports, particularly um, uh, bobsled. I don't know if it's just maybe I perhaps like follow half a dozen people on Instagram that suddenly it's a big deal, but it feels like something that uh, suddenly has like quite a lot of cultural significance. How did you find your way into the sport? So bobsled for me actually dates back to when I was 18. So I, I kind of wanted to to get into sport, wanted to to go to elite sport, but never really had a kind of direction with that. I've always been big and fast um, and kind of, you know, better than average at, at most things, but I didn't have a direction. Um, I tried tried out for the youth bobsleigh program, so the, the under 18s version, but I was just too old for the youth games. Um, and I found myself in this kind of weird limbo between uh, not being uh, good enough as an adult, but also being too old for the youth, but it was, it was then on my radar. Um, I then went to American football instead. So I'd been playing that for a couple of years. I played for the national team and then decided, okay, well, if I want to get any better at this, I'm going to have to go somewhere else. So I went to college in the U S and played there for a couple of years uh, in division one. And that absolutely kicked my ass. Um, that you know that the setups out there are, are something else and it kind of it really it humbled me athletically so I went from oh I can do pretty much any sport I want and be better than most to okay I'm really gonna have to work if I want to make that next step so I think that was absolutely the best thing that could have happened to me at that time though it didn't feel particularly great <laughs> it was absolutely what was needed um, so two years later I then get I, I got released by that team and again, I was kind of, okay, well, what do I do now? My entire identity is built around American football. It's what everybody would ask me if they saw me, you know, oh, how's the thing going in Colorado? And so I was in a bit of a kind of crisis, like, well, who am I without this? Um, and the Sochi Olympics were on the TV. So I got, I got released in the January and in the February was the Sochi Olympics. So I was watching that and I was like, oh yeah, maybe I should try and give that a go so i looked it up again and kind of every olympic cycle generally is when when places recruit so they were having a recruitment drive and i thought well i'll go to those tryouts and my plan had been i'll go to the tryout see how that is run come back train for a year and come back and, and hopefully do well at it um and i kind of scraped in through that first tryout got invited to the next stage and to my surprise ended up making the development team that year and then within the, the British structure kind of worked, worked my way up um, into very close contention for the Olympics in, within that cycle. Unfortunately, didn't get, didn't get selected, but uh, yeah, I was close. I think that uh, this was actually probably chatting about, about your story and, and your kind of development was the first time I'd ever kind of come across the idea that you can just try out for some Olympic sports. Like I'd oh, know, absolutely. I had no idea. I, I guess I'd never given it any thought. I just presumed, um, you know, like with any sort of athletic development, people, there'd be systems in place and people would come from clubs, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. I kind of never really thought, yeah, there's probably sports that they do just have an intake and people can go and try out for. Um, 
was this something you just found through kind of uh, uh, chance or was it specifically Bob say specifically interested you and you, you kind of looked into the mechanics of, you know, going to the Olympics. It sounds so lofty. It sounds like, mm. how do you start there? But I guess sports like that, um, you know, that's, that's well, your main field of play, right? Bob say for me was a case, literally a case of just seeing it in the Olympics and thinking that's cool as heck. I want to kind of give that a go. And I was at the stage where like, yeah, if it had come up, I'd have paid to have a go in a Bob say, um, that kind of thing. So it kind of was born of that out of just yeah. interest for it, it. It looked cool and maybe I'll give it a go. It wasn't that I got into it thinking, right, this I'm going to an Olympics this way. Um, but certainly a lot of the kind of the more fringe niche sports, you know, no one is growing up doing Bob say. Well, first yeah. off, you're generally not allowed to even sit in a bobsleigh until you're 16 anyway. The people that do grow up are the ones that are born by a track. They'll start in luge, uh, learn as a kid in luge, and then graduate up to bobsleigh. Um, but no, I mean, certainly in the UK and, and pretty much any nation that isn't doesn't have a track, and even then, if you're not within you know driving distance of the track, yeah. you're not growing up doing it. And that's also the case for a, a ton of sports. Um, so I think, yes, if you're looking at a mainstream sport, you probably have to grow up doing it. Otherwise, you're just going to be behind the curve. Yeah. Found that out the hard way with American football. <laughs> Those guys are on another level. You know, I, I got into it when I was 16 and I go out at age 20 something. And uh, yeah, got absolutely whooped. But in these kind of more niche sports, yeah, absolutely. They're, they're looking for kind of anyone and everyone now. Obviously, it's going to help to to have a good athletic background yeah. to have been doing sport. But you know, I've seen people that have have come into um, various different things that have just kind of found out that something they have or something they can do is actually well suited to this sport. And yeah, like Bob say, for example, it's it's actually called like an athlete's graveyard, <laughs> which is a, a weird weird one way of putting it. But certainly for for sprinters, for example, a lot of sprinters that are too heavy to make that next step or, you know, maybe have something else that means they're not quite fast enough in our sport makes them very well suited to it. Um, And you've got various different things like that. People that maybe didn't make it in their sport find that the reason they didn't make it actually makes them uh, well suited to bobsleigh, but also the pushing side of bobsleigh specifically, you can go a long way on pure athletic ability. There's once you get into the thousandths of a second and hundredths of a second, yes, then you need to refine that skill and that takes years, but you can get to an elite level by just being a formidable athlete that takes well to it, Uh, which I guess is kind of where I came into it because my technique wasn't particularly good. Um, But when I was on the side of a sled, you know, I I was able to use my kind of mass and speed to accelerate that thing pretty quick without really having any idea what I was doing. (laughs) <laughs> yeah just kind of jump in absolutely yeah uh, you mentioned that you you'd been for the tryouts and your kind of plan was to then go away and 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 train for, for a year was that something that was supported by um you know at, at a kind of what you know the equivalent of club level you know the development the governing body or was there a lot of kind of you need to you mentioned that you can go a long way with just general athletic ability. Was that a case if you just went away and you kind of honed what you already had? 
Yeah, well, the tricky thing with bobsleigh is that it only exists at the elite level. There yeah. is nothing, there's nothing below that. There's the international level competing for the kind of Olympic spots and World Cup spots and stuff like that. After that, there is nothing else because there's a huge barrier to entry with yeah. regards to cost and, and logistics and all, and all of that stuff. But, um, you know, I don't know how much we'll get get into over the, over the space of this podcast, but the kind of overriding theme you'll see is probably that I just crack on and do it i think oh that'd be cool to try and i find a way of making that happen i guess there's there was no structure in that instance i went to the tryout and after that um you just kind of have to make it happen yourself so every year the team is reevaluated. there is no structured training or, or there wasn't any structured training it was a case of these are the trial dates and that's for every athlete that's been in the sport for 10 years or is brand new and they are going to reevaluate everybody and year on year you have to be at these certain metrics or rank this certain place in the country and it's up to you to do your own training your own preparation to get to that point so it's very it's kind of a very solo team sport from from that point of view uh, yeah absolutely and to its detriment because in these larger programs and it's certainly my experience of the british program you had 20 individuals all trying to then come together in a team sport so what the germans do for example and the germans are by far the best in the world you know at our sport they've they've won everything for the last you know goodness knows how long uh, they operate as crews throughout the entire summer if they have selection it's right at the start of the summer right at the start of the off season and then it's like right here's your group of guys go away and work together um and that's absolutely the, the way it should be and it's the way i try and run my team now that i have some autonomy because if you've got five individuals that are all competing against each other it doesn't yeah. matter then if they are you know maybe one's a couple of hundreds faster than the next if you put them in a sled together and they're not a cohesive unit it doesn't matter because the team is greater than the sum of its parts and i think that was the problem with with stuff back then and it it's changed a little bit since um to cut a very long story short, the funding was absolutely obliterated in um, 2018. And that meant that then all the different sleds, and sleds is the term for the team, um, had to be self-funded and self-operated, which then gave the pilots the ability to pick their own teams right. in large part. And actually, British Bobsleigh has started to see some success recently because of that, because they're saying, okay, well, here is a unit that have worked together for a couple of years, know each other and work together athletically. Um, I think that's yeah it's the way it should be but it's not the way it's always been yeah it's really interesting until kind of until looking into this it would have just been my you know natural presumption would have been you are selected for a team and then you you train as a team it would have just been my even as someone who's never played a team sport in my life it just yeah seems intuitive right yes it wasn't until you'd, looking you'd, into you'd this. have thought so but my world cup debut um, so I was down in Königsee in Bavaria, Germany, and I didn't know until the night before whether I'd be racing and if I was, who I was racing with. So we found that crew out at 7 p.m. the night before. We then go into the garage and do some kind of loading drills, which is the, the practice where we all kind of jump in the sled so we know how that's going. Uh, but up until that point, the night before, we had never worked together as a four-man crew, uh, which to me is absolutely wild but it's uh, you know it's, as a brakeman and as a kind of cog in that machine it, it wasn't my position to question it I was there to to do as I was told realistically yeah that's just absolutely amazing so that kind of leads me on to our next point which is 
Was there anything else you, you picked up on from your time uh, racing for GB that you've taken forward now? Um, yes and no. I mean, as a brakeman, which is the push athlete, um, I learned a lot. I saw what I thought was worked on well and what I thought could be bettered. Um, I was, you know, kind of constantly watching things and thinking, mm, hang on, that doesn't really make sense. That's yes. It's how we've been doing it for years, but it doesn't really make sense. But then there's other, other parts that, you know, uh, I think were good. And so try and make, you know, pick and choose those things to then make my own team better. And I know certainly now my current team and, and even the last couple of years when I've been a pilot for Great Britain, I know that my team are thankful that I've been in their shoes. Um, so yeah. they know I'm first off not asking anything of them that I haven't done myself, but also that I've been through that system and know it and can kind of lead f from experience and lead by example, rather than just imposing arbitrary rules um because again certainly that's that's how it was in the previous cycle the kind of um sochi to pyeongchang cycle it was do this you know because because you're being told to do it um without any kind of explanation and it was this uh, idea of inherited knowledge yeah. um rather than actually practicing okay well why are we doing this and how can that be improved it was like no this is what you do and this is how it's going to stay and you can shut up if you've got anything to say about it yeah, I, I heard a great quote once, which was, um, tradition is just peer pressure from dead people. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, uh, that really does make sense of, especially in this country, the way a lot of things are, are done. Definitely. And this is the thing, it's, I've you know, met people at the, the higher level of various different sports, and it's certainly not exclusive to bobsleigh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, yeah, that, that, well that much imagine. is for sure. And you got it from mainstream sports down to the more fringe ones. It's, and I, I think it's born of a tricky situation whereby the people that are in charge of any sport, and you can see it from, you know, tennis and athletics down to you know, kind of you know, whatever your bad, bobsleigh, badminton, those kinds of smaller sports, right? Um, is that when you've got someone that you're going to put in charge, do you hire someone that knows how to run a business and knows how to bring in sponsorship and logistics and all of that, but has no idea about the sport itself? Or do you hire an athlete that may not have a clue how to run an entire organization? You know, which of those is the preferable situation? Because it's it's rare that you're going to find an athlete yeah. that knows the sport intimately that can also actually run the thing. And so you get into this kind of cycle of, okay, who's running what and where are their allegiances? Is there allegiance to the athlete and to the sport and to the progression of that? Or is it to running what they see as a, an efficient business slash program? Uh, and the two, I don't think mesh particularly well. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely a, a hard balance to strike. And as you say, unlikely you're going to ever find the rare unicorn that, um, that manages both well, right? So yeah. once you've made the decision to kind of go all in, Trinidad and Tobago, mm. what was your what was your first step um, from a, from a sporting perspective? Obviously, you mentioned that there'd been teams previously, but there'd been like a lapse of like twenty years, and then there's a setup for the Summer Olympics. But um, for you personally, like, how did you? You know, how do you? take on such a monumental task like where do you start yeah well I, I to be fair it didn't really feel that monumental 
um they were, once i got into the thick of it i was like okay this this really is right at the limit of how much i can handle <laughs> um but i i knew the bobsleigh setup intimately the the way that so the international bobsleigh federation is called the ibsf i knew how that worked and i knew that they wanted new nations and stuff like that and i, I knew that it wouldn't be too tricky to establish myself there i know that i have um, an athletic baseline. So there's all kinds of different qualification criteria within bobsleigh so that you've not got people going to tracks and races that they're simply not ready for. Now, I'd met all of those criteria and I checked that that follows me regardless of who I'm competing for. So yeah. I've met these things. I don't have to then reestablish myself one, uh, once I'm in, in Trinidad and Tobago. So I had a kind of a baseline. I also knew the... Um, the way for transferring athletes across. So two of my athletes that I uh, had on my team with Great Britain, they actually followed me to Trinidad and Tobago and they can't compete in the Olympics, but they were able to compete in everything else. So I was like, okay, well, I've got all of my own equipment. I own all of that already. There was no government funding or no funding within the British setup. So everything that I had, my entire team, structure, business, all of that, can just change the flag that's that's at the top of it. it. None of that will change. So if I can get some athletes and get an organization to compete under, then we're set. And so that's kind of where it started. Is, okay, I've got all of this that I've built up. Not much of that needs to change. Yes, the color of the team kit and all of that, but everything else, there, there is a, a base level. I just need to find a crew of athletes and there's huge athletic talent in Trinidad and Tobago. And then I need to form the uh, federation. So it was kind of a two-pronged attack. You've got, okay, right, let's speak to some lawyers and speak to that kind of side of things to get the federation founded whilst also reaching out to athletes. It was a bit of a chicken and egg scenario with how do I approach a new athlete yeah. in the summer with enough time while saying, yeah, well, we're probably going to have a federation yeah. <laughs> and we're probably going to do this. Oh, and it's a sport that you've kind of only ever really heard about. But yeah, we, you know, we, we're doing it. And so obviously it was met with skepticism throughout. So we kind of had to do enough to give people something to, to see before yeah. I was able to recruit any athletes. And realistically, I, I went out to Trinidad on the 30th of September. That was the literal earliest I could get out with travel bans and passports and all of that, which was two weeks before the start of the season um, with no, nobody. <laughs> so I literally turned up to athletic you know track and field trainings in port of spain in trinidad and just kind of went up to athletes was like hey man uh what do you think to bobsley <laughs> oh, wow. and it's funny talking to the guys that did end up on the team like what their first impressions were you know they're like this guy looks lost <laughs> and i think that's absolutely fair enough you, know, you got this kind of big big white dude in trinidad and tobago kit turning up to a track and field session and uh, I had my timing gates to kind of see if anybody wanted to to give it a go. And yeah, I felt a bit lost, to be fair. Um, so yeah, two weeks out from the start of the season, there wasn't a single Trini athlete on the team. Absolutely uh, so, incredible. Yeah, just kind of had to get feet on the ground there and, and pretty much just find a way of making it happen. And there was this one Tuesday when I'd, I'd met an athlete and it had gone well. He was a cyclist great for bobsleigh he said he you know could do a couple of the weeks um 
and then the floor fell out of the entire thing uh, i you know i was kind of keeping a vlog and i can i watch it back now and it's not even that long ago but it feels like a lifetime where um the legalities for getting the british athletes registered with me because uh, the nationality follows the pilot um that had fallen through and then we'd also found out that the um, u.s embassy in trinidad was not issuing new visas and so any athlete like that wanted to go to the u.s couldn't get a visa same for canada and so it's like oh, okay well so i have literally nobody and it really was a turning point i was like do i just go home is this mission mission failed kind of thing it was it really was that bad um and so i had to go through this kind of filter process of okay who's interested right we've got quite a few people we put the word out on instagram we've got 20 or 30 people that are interested okay who's interested and athletic enough right so it dwindles down a bit who's athletic enough and also vaccinated because that's necessary for the races who's athletic vaccinated has the right visas who's athletic vaccinated has the right visas and can leave in 10 days well there was only one guy after all of that in in all of that there was there was one guy a guy called shaquille john his brother wanted to come out shamari john both great track athletes um but he had lost the passport that had the visa in it and we had to oh. do this whole thing. So, yeah, exactly. You couldn't and make it up, could you? <laughs> no, and, and it's this, and it's a paper visa, you know, it's not stored in any system yeah. anywhere. So um, he wasn't able to get it. So literally leave with, with my one guy, Shaquille John, um, to kind of make it happen. And since then we've, because we've done quite well, had more recruiting power and the kind of word of what we are doing has spread, which is all along what I'd hoped. Uh, we've kind of yeah established ourselves and been able to to kind of introduce more people to the sport. And now we have a body of, of four really good athletes. Um, and in the next couple of weeks, we'll make the selection as to to who comes to the Olympics if we qualify. Aside from vaccinated, you know, can travel, passport, all that stuff. What is it you were looking for in, you know, if the, if the, um, if kind of all bets were off and, and none of the other kind of the noise that's been around the last few years and, and kind of the bureaucracy of what you were doing, what would you be looking for or what are you looking for? Yeah. In, in so numbers? generally you're looking for big, strong, fast people. Now, there's plenty of big people, plenty of fast people, plenty of strong people. But it's the mixture of all of those that make a good bobsledder. So you want someone that has the leg speed to contribute to a 200-kilo sled that is running downhill on ice because that speeds up very quick. So you need someone that can still stay behind that and contribute it and get it up to as high a speed as possible when you load in. But it also, like I said, weighs 200 kilos. So you need to be strong enough to hit that object when it's stationary and get it up to speed. You also then need to be heavy. It makes sense that the heavier you are, the faster you're going to go downhill, which is the name of the game. So you, there is a weight limit, but that's for sled and athletes included. So you want to have your weight in the athlete rather than in the sled because you would rather have a heavy athlete push a light object than a light athlete push a heavy object. It just works out better as you're going down the hill. So you want that kind of mixture of big, fast, and strong. 
And you can make concessions on those. You know, if someone's really fast, you can make concessions on the weight. Um, if someone's really strong, sometimes that can outweigh their um, speed. So the other side to that is, okay, I am always going to get in the sled. The driver is always there. So what complements me the best? Because we're running a two-man team. We do four-man as well, but we're focused on the two-man. So the thing that fo- that complements me is someone with pure leg speed so i'm very good at getting that heavy object moving and running it through that 30 40 meter range but i'm not an elite elite level sprinter i'm i'm pretty quick but i'm i'm not you know up up there with the best over 100 meters so we need somebody that then once i've loaded into the sled can still contribute now the problem had been in the british setup all of the athletes on my team were similar to me. So we were great at getting the, the sled moving and great at getting it to that 30. And so we would have good start times, but our actual velocity when loading into the sled, which actually is the crucial metric. So you've got the start time, which is branded everywhere. And it's what you know they talk a lot about in the Olympics, for example, but actually the start velocity has much more bearing on how fast your sled is going to be for the rest of the um, trip. So, to complement me, I want somebody that's really quick. Now, the benefit there with Trinidad and Tobago is there's that in abundance. You know, I'm, I'm talking to guys that have run 10-2, 10-3 for 100 meters and don't get a look in at their Olympic 100 meters uh, squad. Now, you put that athlete in Great Britain and you know they're, they're absolutely one of the best going. So there's a, a wealth of really, really fast athletes that can't even yeah get a look in with the national team there so that was where we started with recruiting um trinidad and Tobagans was okay we just need speed uh because i know that i can make up for their any lack of strength by pushing heavier that's always been my ability is the heavier the sled um the better my technique and the better relatively speaking my push so yeah, that's where we are right now. We've got four track and field athletes, four sprinters. Um, three of them are 100 meters and one of them is 110 hurdles, but they're all absolutely elite when it comes to leg speed. And what's cool is over the last several races, we've been able to have that kind of proof of concept and see that. So we've got one guy, Tom, who's his technique is is impeccable he's been in the sport a couple of years but he's got really good form but he's a very similar athlete to me now we then had uh shack who's got really great leg speed and his bobsleigh form was was trash but he was within two hundredths of a second on pairs pushing with me paired with the sprinter versus me paired with the experienced athlete that's similar profile to me so we had that proof concept early on it was like oh okay so me partnered with a sprint athlete, it's not just hypothetical, it actually does work. It leads to good bobsleigh starts. So yeah, really excited to see what these other sprinters can do over the next few weeks because we're, we're doing a push camp. So we're doing 10 days of just pure pushing because that's what we're lacking. I know I can drive the sled at an elite level. I know that if we get to the Olympics, I'll, I'll be able to drive it relatively well. Um, but that's because I've been doing it for years. So we need to take these guys that are brand new to the sport and just get them reps on pushing a sled. Um, but I'm excited to see what these really elite sprinters can do once their technique improves. And who knows, maybe we can make a splash because 
we're not going to be winning anything if we go. We're under no illusions. So, you know, we're not going to be winning anything. I think we're aiming top 20 would be pretty uh, fantastic for us. And, you know, maybe we can get the highest Caribbean finish ever in a bobsleigh, something like that. But I think if we can make an impact somewhere, maybe that's on the start, maybe it's just that the sled looks cool or something. I think if we can do something that catches people's eye and says, oh, okay, Trinidad and Tobago, yes, it's cute that they're here, but actually they're pretty decent as well. Because that's always been the thing with cool runnings. Yes, it's great that they were there and they're a good bunch, but they're not very good at actual bobsleigh. So that's what we want to change. We want to be there. We want to have fun. We want to bring the Caribbean spirit to the uh, bobsleigh in the Olympics. But we also want to actually do the thing and do it to a high standard. Yeah, make a mark. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What you kind of harking back to what you we spoke about earlier about historically there was a lack of cohesion and and the way that um you know the way the teams were put together is not something you'd usually encounter in in team sports. How has that experience kind of informed what you're doing with the guys you've got now, if if at all? Oh, it's it's been everything. And so I, I started my team called Axe Racing. And so now that operates under Trinidad and Tobago, but previously it was with Great Britain on the principle of good people. Yes, with an athletic baseline, but good people that all get along with each other. So that's number one before any of the other things when previously number one had been, okay, how fast can you run 60 meters under yeah. tension? Okay, no, we're going to put above that being good people that get along because ultimately we're living together. I've spent, so Tom on my team, you know, he has a, 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 he's in a long-term relationship. He and I have spent more time together than him and his girlfriend. You know, we, we are living together for months on end. If you hate each other and I know teams where athletes actively hate each other, heck I've been on one. Um, it's just, it's completely toxic and it doesn't matter how good of an athlete you are. If you're in a toxic environment, it's going to come back and it's going to show on the scoreboard. So we built the team on the idea of, okay, look, we have to get along as people and so that we can go away and live together and get to know each other and want to compete for each other, not just for ourselves. So it's been absolutely the number one thing is, okay, we, we have a team and anybody that wants to come into that Yes, they have to be a good enough athletically, sure, but they also have to get along with us because I'm not going to have someone on my team that's a great athlete but that doesn't want to, you know, doesn't want to be around us or doesn't want to bond well. It just it won't work because we're in a really high pressure environment. You know, when you're at the top of a bobsleigh track about to do a mile, hurtle down a mile of ice at near enough 100 miles an hour, tensions are high and so emotions yeah. run high as well. And if you don't have each other's backs or each other's best interests at heart um, that can really come back to bite you and also you want to go back to your house at the end of a day of bobsleigh and be able to just hang out if the only thing you have in common with the people on your team is bobsleigh chances are you're just going to go home and talk shop and all of that and, and never actually really feel like you come out of the world of bobsleigh which again from experience that takes an absolute toll i've been yeah. away on you know a six six week season not even that long that felt like a lifetime because i didn't like anybody on the team they didn't like me we didn't have anything in common we couldn't talk about anything and so the only thing that you've got is is bobsleigh and really that's no no way to live yeah yeah i think like 
to me, when I started looking into this, I was like, viscerally, exactly kind of what you just described there. You are, you're, you know, you're hurtling down the ice and you're a hundred miles an hour together in, you know, a very confined space. Everything about it, like from a, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm too romantic with this stuff, but like everything about it, like metaphorically is there, it, it drums up ideas of, um, of, of camaraderie and of kinship. And when I kind of, started realizing the way historical, you know, looking into the way historically teams had run, it, it seemed so kind of backwards to me. And yeah, I, the thing I had in mind was that old cliche of, you know, a team is greater than the sum of its parts. And I honestly think if you have four people that aren't functioning as a team, that's going to, as you say, that's going to reflect on the scoreboard, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. And, 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 it's tricky because I don't I don't want to just kind of be here, you know, talking crap about the yeah. British setup and stuff. But I think again, it, it's that same thing of it being true that you've got people trying to run an elite program the way that they kind of have this idea an elite program should run, and yeah. it would be the same in athletics of this purely metric based approach of this is how you get funding, this is how you make a team, this is how you select a team, without actually kind of paying attention to the subjective side of things of 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 those things that i just mentioned of living together and all of that that's so important especially when you're having to be on the road it's not like a sport where you can just turn up compete on the weekend and go back home you have to be on the road and you have to be together that it's very hard to quantify and it's very hard to run a multiple um sled nation in that way because how do you say okay well this team gets along well and also make that work and that's also trickle down from uk sport you know uk sport make sure that you have these objective barriers to funding and stuff and say the only way someone can make a team is is through this or through that well that is great in theory and that is a great way of picking the best pure athletes sure but it's much more than that it's much more than that and um you're you're right once you're in a sled with people it is it is much more than that and it's much more than the hundreds of seconds in testing and stuff because it's about what you can do together in that environment uh where you've been training all week together um yeah i guess it's kind of like if you you know if you went to any kind of gym and found any athletes in any sport and said okay great do that but you cannot leave each other's side for the next three months everybody's going to everybody's going to be snapping at each other and stuff like that because they're all individual athletes that are now being forced in together um it's kind of a recipe for disaster especially you know everybody in elite sport generally is going to see themselves as a kind of alpha yeah. right you know they're going to say oh i'm i'm head of the pack that's how they've got to this position yeah. and so you then try and jam 10 people that all want to be you know head of the table all want to be the loudest voice together and say work together for each other and unless there's something there that's making that mesh it just doesn't work yeah yeah i don't don't think anyone needs to have played sport a professional level to kind of uh empathize with the idea that you kind of work a little bit harder for people when you like them Mm. you know you're more willing to put yourself on the line and you're willing to try a bit harder and i can certainly see how you know even taking it to a personal level i can see how over the course of a long, tiring day, if I was with three people that were just, you know, kind of strangers to me, it would be very easy to kind of, even not consciously, 
the performance to tone down because oh, that's the same it. thing is not there, is it? That's it for sure. I don't think any, for a second that anybody's not competing their yeah. best. I think they, they at least think they are. I've yeah. been in that position myself where I was giving it everything that I could, but is, was that, was the best being brought out of me? Absolutely not. Yeah. Absolutely not. Because I was in, you know, a team of people that I just didn't get along with. How does the, the, the physical training look for you? Obviously we touched on earlier that, um, you know, your general athletic, general athletic ability takes you a long way, but you've been in the game for a long time now. Has that altered how you look at your training? Is there anything you do specifically now that you feel has put you ahead of where you were when you were much younger? When I first came into the sport, um, my, my biggest problem was that I was overweight. So we said about there being a weight limit. Um, well, I was close. Oh, well, I was 118 kilos, uh, which, you know, is, is a lot. I could still move that weight, which is what, what got me on the team. But it was, it was too much to work within a four-man team. And so my focus there was just kind of like lean up and, and be more of a bobsleigh athlete, right? Whilst then also working on kind of my strength and speed and trying to just increase those things. Um, so that was the first couple of years. Then I got a decent size adductor injury going into Olympic year uh, and got cut right uh, in May of that year with Olympic selection coming up. I got cut and that kind of rehabbing that actually forced me to change my approach to training and identify some things that I hadn't done before and actually it was probably the best thing that could have happened because then I, I kind of addressed those and made this huge increase in my athletic ability whilst also dropping my weight considerably and got myself in very close contention for those olympics i wasn't selected based on lack of experience if it was again pure purely done on the tests i'd i'd have been in and i'd have gone to the games but i just didn't have the experience necessary to to go to an olympics as a spare and as the spare you have to be a you know jack of all trades and yeah. I was not a jack of all trades. I wasn't even really a master of any of them either. Um, but then s since then, being a pilot suits me better athletically because you um, shorten the distance you run. So again, I can kind of focus on that short burst strength and speed rather than having to focus on the, on the top end speed. Um, but it's hard to say because I've never really had any, within our sport at least, great athletic feats that I can point to. There's nothing that I'm doing that's stronger than anyone in bobsleigh or faster than anyone in bobsleigh or any of those things. Um, so I can't really kind of highlight something that I'm doing that's that's making me succeed. I think it's probably more the off-the-ice stuff. I think it's positioning myself well to to you know peak at the right times and, and do all of that stuff but that's again why being a pilot has suited me because i'm right on that kind of fringe of the upper tier of athletes within bobsleigh um but where i excel is is in my ability to also plan and do logistics and and do all of those things which is necessary of a pilot in an unfunded uh, program you have to run your own team and so when the funding got pulled out of the British program, that's where I saw my opening. I was like, okay, well, I'm right on the fringe here. The way I make that move to the next level is to involve the other things, which I think I can do better than most. And that's certainly, um, certainly shown. There's no, there's no one else in the world in bobsleigh that's 
doing what I'm doing right now. And that's a pretty cool thing. I mean, it's, it's partly out of circumstance, you know, having to do it all myself. Um, but I think I do like it that way in a macro sense. There's sometimes when I'm like, damn, I wish someone else would do this, but yeah. I know no one else is going to. And so I just got to do it myself. And yeah. Yeah, yeah that, that's the, there's an expression that kind of opportunity lies where responsibility is is vacated, right? And yeah. you know, like it or not, sometimes you you've taken up the mantle and that's that's put you where you are, put you where yeah. you are now. What is your what does your general day to day training um, off the ice look like to kind of keep yourself in in uh, you know peak shape? Well, so as you as you'd expect, it's it's lots of just speed and strength. So. I, I have found that up to a point, you have to be strong. You have to be, you know, very strong. But I don't think really squatting much above 180 made makes a particularly big difference. So um, I got my squat up to 220 kilos at one point, and it didn't feel to benefit me much anymore. I'd much rather be able to move 160, 70, 180 fast than be able to, you know, grunt t- 220 out the hole that kind of thing so i've moved my training more towards that more towards the dynamic stuff but then this summer started working with paul warrior have you had him on the podcast i feel like you must have no i've never heard of paul warrior no well you, no yeah. that's, a, that's a joke that's a joke paul's a good friend i love paul okay good <laughs> yeah. I was like, the, yeah some stuff doesn't add up yeah, here. <laughs> yeah. yeah paul's, paul's been on time so. Yeah. And, and so I spoke with him um, at the start of the off season and said, look, let's work together for like 10 weeks and just see what happens. I'm not going to get any worse. Um, so let's see if we can just kind of switch things up because I've been plugging away at the same um, training for all of these years. And yes, I've got to a good point, but how do I kind of reach that next level? And so we, we spoke about a few things and he's, got me in a in a really good place but he's also brought a lot of the fun back into training for yeah. me um because i was just and, and i was self-programming based off several different people i'd worked with and you know say okay well i like this part of that and i like that part of that but it was just kind of drudging away at the same thing over and over um albeit that it was working but what, what i'd found through lockdown uh, well, you know i was going into um the power base gym in loughborough great gym and I was going to the high pack athletics track and running daily and then lockdown happens and everybody has to kind of retreat into what they've got now I had a garage gym and so I was able to plug away at that and just kind of did some hill sprints and and turf sprints and stuff like that when I could and then came into that season and set a bunch of pbs I was like oh okay so actually just those things suit me athletically. I don't need to be doing 70 meter sprints and all of that kind of conditioning because actually this other style of the training works better for me. And so dialed that back and said, okay, well, I'm only going to work out now in my garage and I'm going to do the sprints that complement that and build that as a program rather than again, these things that I've been doing for years and it's, and it's been paying dividends. Obviously that's, that's where Paul's expertise is. It's just kind of in a box and, you know, cracking on with all of that. Now he's always said the whole time that his expertise isn't in sprinting and isn't in bobsleigh. So we've kind of learned together through my feedback of like this feels like this is working and he'll go away and kind of make those alterations. But he's also got me in just better physical shape just general fitness that kind of thing because i'd built myself into yes a five second max exertion athlete but was finding that um you know i was struggling with 
not struggling with longer sessions, but I wasn't putting in the work that I felt like I could be. And so actually we've kind of got my fitness and, and overall athleticism and, and efficiency through movement was our kind of main thing. It's like, look, I'm not going to lose my leg strength. I'm not going to lose my speed as long as we maintain that. Yeah. But how can we make me more efficient through movement? And ultimately, it doesn't matter how strong your legs are, if you can't transfer that through your torso and through your arms into the push bar, it doesn't matter how strong they are. You're not going to be able to transfer it. So how can we work on that transfer chain uh, whilst maintaining strength and speed, because we know that's at a good point. So how do we work on all the rest of that stuff? And, um, you know, as much as it's embarrassing to say at the start of last year, I couldn't do a single pull up, not one, you know, part, part of that's like, right, well, I'm 115 kilos. That's a lot of weight to move, but I couldn't do a single body weight pull up. And then I go into um, the season being able to do kind of four sets of, of six of those still it's not you know blowing the doors off anything. I know it's only a few pull-ups but it showed how much more efficient I was able to kind of you know move my body and actually that transfer of strength I've seen in pushing this year um, and teammates that have known me for years have seen how much more um, kind of rigid I am in my push position being tall, I've always had to hunch over, but I, yeah. I feel now that I'm more able to transfer what I know my legs can do into the bar rather than, um, you know, trying to. So if I can put 90% of that through instead of, you know, 75%, that's right. a huge margin in our, in our game. So that's kind of what I've been doing this, this last year. And it certainly seems to have uh, paid off. Yeah, I think definitely in uh, you know in sports sometimes we talk all the time about sort of specificity and training and it's very easy to get bogged down into that and into the idea of like well I just need to output loads of power mm. from my legs. Yeah. So what does that look like? And I think where where Paul is great is that he's not he's not com confined by any of the, any kind of overly dogmatic rigid approach to anything where he would almost kind of there's an analogy here to the to the, the sporting bodies we were talking about at the beginning where, well, you know, let's just focus on this because we know it works. Yeah. Whereas as you say, like positioning is important. Efficacy, outputting that mm. power and getting it to the right place is important. And these are all things that can't necessarily be done through simply drilling what you're doing yeah. or increasing your For leg sure. strength and power. All of this stuff's incredibly important. And we are, we're a body. You're not a pair of legs stacked on top of a torso. It's all interconnected, right? And, I could even see in my head there where you kind of uh, segued there from being able to do four sets of six pull-ups. And before you, in my head, I'm like, I can imagine now that structure, you know, a spina, a yeah. uh, rectus spina yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, up through your core, like the ability to transfer that power onto the push pole is can't yeah. not, it's not going to get any worse through being able to do four sets of six. Oh, well, well, exactly. And that's, that's what we said. Uh, Paul and I said, it's like, look, we're not going to get worse doing this. As long as we're doing enough to maintain those other metrics, it can, we, we can just find out and, and find out by example, because ultimately it's, it's easy to say, okay, well, what do you need? You need strength and speed. So let's take our metrics of strength as just being like your know, back squat or a leg oh. press or something like that and say okay well let's try and get better at that right speed okay so this is your time for 60 let's try and get faster at that and yes you can increase all of those but if you're not connecting the dots and not actually kind of taking a step back and saying how do we make this work in a bobsleigh sense um better and more efficient then uh, yeah it's, it's hard to improve and i think 
it's early days in in changing my kind of training to be that way, but I'm I'm excited for where it'll lead because um, I've you know done enough in that current or that that previous style of training that okay I know where I can get to with that. Well, if we can increase it, even you know small percentages in our business mean a lot. So even if we're just squeezing out, you know, marginal gains here and there, that will add up to something. And I'm excited to see where that will lead. I think there was a really nice metaphor in there uh, in terms of just what you were saying about where you've seen improvements and how with your training and the, the ethos you've tried to foster with the team in terms of like, you know, you can have the yeah. best of everything, but yeah. if it doesn't all work together, that's going to reflect. Sure. Yeah. I really sure. And I think that's always something I've, I've tried to do is take a step back from just plugging away at something and say, okay, what's the goal here? What's the actual end goal? Yeah. And then how do we break that down into things that we can do? And like you said at the top of like, how did you even start uh, uh, creating an entire bobsleigh program? Well, you don't just like, jump straight into it. I said, okay, well, what do I, what do I want to build? Yes, it's this. And how do we get there in an efficient and uh, productive manner? And, you know, what are the little, little things that we can make happen that will eventually lead to that? Um, and yeah, I think that's again, being one of my kind of best things in, in sport and I guess in, in life in general is saying, okay, I, I want this. How do I make that happen? How do I bring that into reality? Um, and it's almost always the answer is not just keep plugging away at what you're doing yeah. and hope something happens. So hope something changes. Now that that's not going to work. You're going to have to say, okay, right on me. What can we change? Because this ain't working. So what, what can we change? And that can be a, from a micro sense of the sandpaper that we're using to, to sand the runners before we go on the ice all the way up to, you know, kind of broad stroke at team ethos stuff. Yeah. Yeah. There's some, there's some great, um, there's some great wisdom in that. I think that kind of applies to much more than, oh, for uh, sure. you know, sliding down the ice as fast as possible. That's it. People, yeah. you know, people ask me or used to ask me when I was in the lower levels of the team, well, what are you going to do after Bob say like it was some kind of like folly and it's like right now I still don't know. And I, I feel like the lessons that I've learned in building what I've done, will almost certainly transfer over to, to business or to, to kind yeah. of whatever um, that, yeah. So I, I have confidence that what I've learned in the last several years will serve me well, regardless of what I choose to do after Bobsley. Yeah. Not, no shadow of a doubt there. Uh, Axel, I've got the segment of the show we call Toolbox Talk. It's a round of quick fire questions aiming to kind of give listeners a tangible, kind of instantly actionable next steps. Because I think, mm-hmm. I think we've just given them something quite heavy there. So sort of go <laughs> sure. away and, yeah, go away and reevaluate not. their life. <laughs> yeah, I'll try and not ramble on. I'll try oh, and am, I just doing, am I just doing the same thing over and over again and not seeing any mm-hmm. results? <laughs> Shit. <laughs> um, if you can make one book or media, any piece of media really, compulsory reading or watching for people new to training, people in your sport, or indeed everybody, what would it be and for what reason? This doesn't need to be a book. This could be a course. This could be, you know, um, literally anything that someone could go away and digest that's mm-hmm. going to be for their betterment. Well, I mean, specifically to bobsleigh, it's obviously hard to not mention cool runnings right (laughs) but i think actually that at the crux of it what i've tried to do there is very similar to the movie 
take a bunch of guys that are really nice guys that want to have fun, but are also athletic and, you know, put them in the right situation and, and find a way of making, making things happen. So yes, you can watch it for the comedic value, but I think there's also lessons to be learned from that. Yeah. hundred percent. I imagine more than one person will go away from this and, um, watch cool run i mean i know i, oh, I know I'm i did i wasn't sure how much to even mention that over mm. the course of this hour i was like i don't yeah. want to be kind of uh comical because this is a huge incredible mm-hmm. thing you're doing but at the same time there is this funny film it's very oh, yeah and don't get me wrong i mean i have also i have heard about that movie every week of my life for the last seven years since going into the sport but it is a it's a good movie that actually is very similar to what Bob Slay is like you've got like I said athletes graveyard you know uh, that kind of thing you've got athletes that are kind of thrust into this environment no one really grows up doing it they find it one way or another and they end up in the sport um and you see all of those other teams in cool runnings that are all kind of mean and horrible at the top of the track and i that's that is how the sport is it's (laughs) really clicky it's really nasty at times so i think that the takeaway from that is that actually the best way to capture people's imaginations and the best way to get people on side is just just be a decent person as yeah. you know as basic as that sounds and uh yeah and so that's what i've tried to do if you go back in time and speak to yourself in the first year or two of your training or your mm. you know your professional your your sporting endeavors or your adult life what advice would you have for yourself yeah that's 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 tricky because my, my, my instinct is to just be like, right, I'm not going to say anything because actually I needed to learn those lessons myself. Mm. I needed to learn them the hard way. You know, I, I felt going out to Colorado where I played American football that I was, you know, a hot shit kind of thing. And I was like, actually, had I had anyone, you know, give, give me the advice I'd give myself, I probably wouldn't have gone and, you know, maybe, maybe wouldn't have learned that. So, yeah, maybe it's a non-answer to, to be like, actually, I'm pretty grateful for a lot of the stuff I've learned. And I think that's led me to where I am now. So I, I, I don't want to give previous me the easy road. I yeah. want to take those lessons and I want to keep them, you know. Just wish them good luck. <laughs> so, yeah, pretty much. The door, yeah. Be like, yeah, look, you know, maybe, maybe look out for this person or look out for that person along the way. Um, but yeah, I don't think I'd have any broad stroke stuff to, to say to him. Makes sense. You're not you're not the first person to say that either. And uh, someone did point out once that ninety nine percent of people, every likelihood is that you're going to speak to on a podcast are you're chatting to them because they're in a good place. Like <laughs> they're in a good place. Yeah. So um, it might be different if you went to the I don't know the job center and said, "What would you you know What would you tell sure. yourself?" Yeah. But yeah. Um, yeah. What one or two daily or weekly habits or actions possibly unique to you do you feel contribute most to your kind of achievements or even just contentment? Is there anything you you do regularly that maybe is out of the ordinary? Um, When I'm away on season, um, I know that I I do a lot of kind of memory stuff. So for example, right before I, I do a bobsleigh run, I will solve a Rubik's Cube because I find that that hits the same parts of my mm-hmm. brain that driving a bobsleigh does kind of memory and reaction and, and spatial awareness and that kind of thing. Um, I try and, you know, when things get really strenuous with bobsleigh and planning and all of that, I try and embrace for maybe maximum of like an hour, 
when I can't fall asleep, say actually a lot of really good ideas and kind of details come out of that thinking space of just yeah. sitting, lying there, essentially thinking of anything and everything from the minutiae up to the broader stroke stuff that actually that dedicating that time and embracing that time, not thinking, oh, you know, I got to sleep, I got to sleep, I got to sleep, actually embracing that and saying, okay, this is when I can just th- drill down and really think really think about what I'm trying to do and how to get there and all of those things. I find that really helps. Um, yeah, I try and not let it run over to the point where I'm actually not getting any sleep. Uh, so like, you know, things that I'll, things that I'll do to try and get my mind away from it. But actually I think that time of just, or, or maybe even lifting, but with no headphones or music or anything and just using it as real thinking time that that definitely benefits. Yeah, I think we spend so much time with inputs, don't we, that we have mm-hmm. lost the, the... I'm very similar in that I will guard my time to go for a walk or something like that with, with no headphones or maybe start with an audio book or something. And then eventually what I'll yeah. find is I'll, I'll take that out halfway through because the ruminating's done and I'm like, okay, I'm thinking now. It's interesting. I really like the Rubik's Cube thing. It's interesting how we'll spend... You know, people will spend 45 minutes with a Ferragun and some bands warming up before they do Mm. a 15 minute workout, but we'll just go straight to work or just try and, you know, endeavor to be involved in some sort of creative process or write or whatever it is they do for a living with no warm up. Yeah when yeah. you know yeah. it does it i'm exactly the same as you i think we sure. need to and, and have to write or obviously as a driver is a big mental game you know you're about to do something which your body's screaming at you you're about to die stop doing this and it, and it literally does do that but you're, you're having to react and also preempt at the same time because if you actually react to something going wrong in the in the track it's too late you'll crash it, the 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 margins you're dealing with are too fine so you have to be able to preempt stuff and so yes you do have to warm up your mind you have to do visualizations of the track and i think again something that i do that maybe most people don't is visualize stuff going wrong in the track think okay well if i'm over here instead of over there what am i going to do then that kind of thing yeah but yes the the rubik's cube or, or any kind of reaction stuff like that i think hits the right part of my brain because you have to go from seeing red and absolute balls to the wall max physical exertion jump in the sled and then bring your heart rate right down and be able to focus on really millimeter precision through your hands you can't have your hands shaking or anything like that and be smooth and precise and stuff and so practicing that skill i you know without you know rambling on supposed to be quick fire questions but i will warm up my body and have certain music and stuff like that for that. And I'll come in kind of sweating and, and ready to go. And then I bring my heart rate down. I'll listen to generally piano music. Cause again, I think it's got a nice flow to it and you kind of, I can't play the piano, but I can imagine someone being skillful with their hands, which is, again is how you drive a bobsleigh. You need to be, I listen to piano music. I'll do my visualizations. I'll do my Rubik's cube. And I find that, that helps me switch on mentally for what I'm about to, to try and accomplish. Do you, do you do any breath work? Do you have a breath, breath work practice? I don't. Um, I've never really thought about it. I mean, you, the problem is that because you go from, you know, max exertion, you are going to, and then are put under heavy G forces that by the end of the run, you, you're completely out of breath and all of that stuff anyway. So actually in a run, never really thought about it in terms of mental preparation. Again, never really thought about it, but maybe it would help. Yeah, possibly something you do innately, you know, possibly, possibly, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
You seem to have it under control either way. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't be able to tell you what I do in the track. When when we're in the track, it's and it's almost liberating in a way that you're for those two minutes because you do two runs a day, sometimes three. A run is a minute. For that minute, there is absolutely nothing in your mind apart from what's right in front of you and steering that. There can't be. If you're thinking about anything else probably you'll crash yeah. or, or, or get yourself in trouble or, or not be fast. So it's, it's training yourself to be able to get into that headspace of pure, absolute focus for that little bit of time. Can you name one item that you've purchased or acquired relatively inexpensively that's given you a huge return on your investment? So something that you may, you know, might have helped with your productivity or your training, nutrition on the road that someone could just go out and sort of acquire now. Well, we've already mentioned the Rubik's Cube. I had a feeling that was coming up. Yeah. 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 And, and it's weird. That was just, it was something I always wanted to learn. Um, and then learned whilst I was ill uh, a year or so ago. And I was like, wow this and and it just it just kind of made sense the kind of spatial um awareness of it and and how that translates into what i do it just yeah it just kind of made sense and i was like yep this is this is a tool that i'm going to continue to use and continue to learn and, and be better at um so yes, it's kind of a similar answer to the previous one, but I'd say that's probably the biggest thing. And and a lot of the other pilots around when you're at the the top of the track, they kind of come over and they're like, "Nice, that yeah. that's a good idea." You know, I can't do that, but that seems cool and yeah. stuff like that. And you know, so it's I think people realise that it it's yeah, it's something that you can just put your hands on that that does the same thing. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's a great way of, it's, it's almost meditative. It's, yeah. it's something that you can, again, when you're doing it, you're if you're doing it right, you're focused on it and only yeah. that. So there may be other things that are just like it, other kind of puzzles and little handheld things that can just pull you out of what you're doing or pull you out of what's maybe bothering you and put you into this other space that's then I, I prefer that kind of spatial stuff, you know, maybe it's building Lego or whatever, but it's like something that actually clears your head and kind of, you know, it's maybe it's like smelling salts for the, you know, for yeah. the kind of cognitive stuff. It just kind of pulls you out of what you're doing, makes you focus on something else. And then after that, maybe you can say, okay, well, you know, I, I'm in a different headspace now. This is what I want to focus on as as opposed to what I was thinking about before, whatever that is. Yeah, it's a very sort of mind. I've actually, I have a glass top on my desk and I use a board marker to sort of write things down as they become mm. just written Rubik's Cube in huge letters. Because as you said, it, I'm like, that's an incredibly mindful task uh, yeah. right on that cusp of like, it's not physically exerting, but it's mentally. It's like, in mm. we kind of talk about finding flow, like finding a flow state through doing something that's Absolutely. right on the cusp of your ability. And I can yep. see that as being an incredibly uh, mindful thing. And as you, as you said, it's meditative. You're, you're focusing one part of your brain. And if you, this is something I geek out on, but if you look, things mm. like this exist in cultures throughout the world. If you look at kind of rosary beads for Catholics, that's yeah. a mindful practice. And because it allows yeah. the back of your brain to kind of problem solve and, and defrag itself. But yeah, I think that's absolutely brilliant. I am and it's, and it's connecting that to the real world to your hands yeah and it's and it's kind of training that way of okay like how do i get 
what's going on in 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 my head and kind of bring and put that into something real i think most for the most part people you know it's writing and typing is probably the closest thing that yeah. people would on a day-to-day experience with that but it's it's not quite the same it's yeah. you know it's really it's training that yeah for sure yeah i really like that that link between mind and body and not just going mm-hmm. inwards but keeping one foot in kind of the corporeal realm so i've, I've actually got an amazon voucher for christmas which i should now be spending on a Rubik's Well, I will, after this, I'll send you a link to the right one to get. So if you buy just the basic Rubik's Cube, it's quite clunky. It's quite yeah. uh, traditional. You want to get a, a different kind. So I'll send you a link to that Please one. Please do. Yeah, I'll stick it in the show notes, guys. <laughs> Sounds okay. good. Last one. If you could only perform one exercise or movement for the rest of your life, what would it be and why? And you can have kind of running and sprinting and that sort of stuff mm. as, as gratis. Yeah. Um, something something like a, a, and it's it's a, a movement that i've found relatively recently but a front racked split squat i found hits what we need to do really well um you know you're, you're slightly leaning forward you're having to have your whole core tensed to to stay under the weight whilst also you know hitting a a running position you know you kind of get glutes and quads and all of that kind of fired through that through that movement i think it's very applicable to what we do i think it trains strength through the right range of motion whilst also not neglecting things like core and upper back because if you lose that you're never going to be able to put weights on more weight on the bar yeah um so to get to the point where your legs are being worked properly you're going to have to work on your core and upper back and all of that stuff so i'd say that's a pretty for what we do specifically that's a pretty all-round exercise that i quite like i can see that having a huge huge carryover if you gave me a day to think about what you know what movement outside of locomotion outside of pushing a sled etc i'd probably land around there yeah front rack right through the core upper back yeah. postural muscles in in play but unilateral three legs building that stability yeah uh, great For exercise sure. that everybody hates oh yeah yeah <laughs> but, and you really and, and that, but that's it you exactly you hate it for the reasons why you need to do it you hate it because you feel so weak You're yeah like, i've got you know i'm used to moving 200 kilos or whatever and here's 40 on the bar and it's killing me well that then will isolate the reasons that you need to work on it generally it might be your back it might be your glutes it might be your core whatever but whatever sore the next day there it is yeah it's funny how improvements are often to be found in humility aren't they <laughs> the oh, yeah, areas we could sort of shy away from well and and you should try and be excited about that though right like when you find a thing like if you go to the physio and they're like try and do this and you can see your legs shaking or any of that stuff you think okay this is kind of yeah kind of embarrassing that i've not been working i'm not any good at that but actually that means that you've got a huge range for improvement there and that should be an exciting thing that's kind of how I try and spin it to people when I'm working with them remotely, especially if people have come back from injury or something like that. I'm like, just dude, just think how quickly you're going to get strong because you're just going to get oh, yeah. newbie gains. <laughs> like, just make the most of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Dude, where can people find you online? Uh, Instagram is the platform that I'm most active on. So the Axel Brown, um, or one word, that's that's to be fair that's mostly it i i don't do a huge amount online um i just find it's it's another thing to add on top of what i'm already kind of trying to do and um i don't really like the you know having likes validating stuff like that so 
um, limit those, those kinds of things. I've also, we didn't get into it, and I'm very glad we didn't get into it, but in, uh, in the previous setups, um, there was people that kind of harassed me online and, and did all of that kind of thing. And I was like, you know what? I don't think this is benefiting me. So I'm going to limit how much. I, so I don't use Twitter. I don't use Facebook, any of that. Just use Instagram to put some stuff out there. So that's the best way to, best way to find me and to stay up to date with, with our latest endeavors. Well, uh, thank you very much for your time this evening. This has been thoroughly entertaining and I, uh, I'm, I'm sure people have had some everything from kind of microscopic takeaways all the way through to like, oh, am I just doing the same thing every day and expecting my life to get better? Which yeah. uh, might, yeah. you know, might provoke some existential crisis, but that's what we're here for, isn't it? <laughs> well, yeah, as long as it ends in something good, <laughs> yeah, not exactly. Like yeah. Meltdown. <laughs> We've done a service. Here's hoping. Yeah, please don't melt down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's all. Take care, mate. Enjoy the rest of your evening. Yep. Thanks, mate. And there we have it. Thank you for listening in. Guys, if you enjoyed today's episode, it would be greatly appreciated if you could drop us a review on your podcast app of choice. Any feedback you've got, please send it over via social media and don't hesitate to tell us what you would like to hear more of. I'm AT. This has been the Bulldog Gear podcast. Thanks for tuning in, guys.